How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Todd Woody, Craig Miller, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so transportation and electricity are a big part of the carbon equation and have attracted a lot of the uh, venture capital investment lately. So, Todd, tell us what some of the recent uh, headlines have been in, uh, in electric cars. Are they really ready for the mainstream? Um, they're hitting the road later this year in the Bay Area and elsewhere in California um, in small numbers, but they're definitely ready for the road. And more importantly, the regulators are working very hard to get the rules of the road established by the end of this year. Now, a lot of people, when they hear electric cars, you conjure images of go-karts and three wheels. Are these, these are going to be real, real electric cars? These are real cars, and I've driven you know, a number of them. They range from you know, very tiny cars, you know, small cars, to you know, sedans. So and we're talking about all electrics as opposed to like just yes, the next generation of hybrids. All electric cars. And a lot of these companies are based in California. Tell us some of the ones that are getting the investment and how they might compare so either the products or the, the models compare. Sure. Um, a lot of the action actually is happening behind the scenes. The companies are going to build the infrastructure so that you have a place to charge your car in when you go to the shopping mall or go to your office or even to your home. So companies like Better Place in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. it's raised you know, north of $400 million. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is building the whole infrastructure of charging stations, battery swapping stations. There's other companies like that in the Bay Area. Um, that's the stuff that has to be established first if this market's really going to take off. And But Better Place has a little different approach to this, right? Yes. They, they, they're the ones who want to swap out batteries rather than... Uh, uh, so how, that, how's that different from the other approaches to electric cars? Um, competitors are focusing on building the charging stations. You'll see it on the street or at a shopping mall. Better Place is doing that also, but... What they're doing is if you want to take a longer trip, they all have battery swapping stations or look like a gas station on the highway, and you'll drive in. A robot underneath a platform will come take out your battery, swap it out with a new fresh battery so that you can get, say, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Buy some coffee and donuts along the way. It's kind of interesting that a couple of years ago the governor stood up and said, we're going to build a hydrogen highway for the next generation of of, uh, cars, and that's clearly not happened. No. Uh, But the electric thing is happening. It is happening because the fuel already exists. We already have electricity. So with hydrogen, we needed to create a whole new infrastructure that would be extremely expensive. Um, For electric cars, we still have to build an infrastructure of charging stations, but the power is there. So the other model, rather than the swap out a battery, mm-hmm. is that you have to sort of find a plug every, every so many hours. Or I believe one of them, Fisker, for example, is, is, others have sort of electric. They're hybrids, basically. They're not pure, yes. purely a, a electric. What about the big companies? What are, I mean, we know that GM is doing the yeah. Volt. Um, are, are the big boys in playing in this, or, are they, yes. or is it startup-driven? Probably it's um, on the automaker side, they're definitely in play. I mean, almost every major automaker will come out with an electric car in the next couple of years. I mean, this year in California, you see the Chevy Volt, which is a hybrid. Um, you'll see the Nissan Leaf, which is an all-electric car. They've been very aggressive. Ford's going to bring the Focus electric version of the Focus out in 2011. So 
there's going to be actually quite a few, a lot of choices. And when you mention electric car in California, a lot of people think of Tesla because our governor has been a, a, a cheerleader for, right. for Tesla. Uh, their IPO is rumored to be happening. They filed for an IPO. Yes. It's said to be in June sometime. Uh, is that going to be a big deal in the, in the story of electric cars? We'll see. Um, I don't think there's going to be sort of a Netscape moment for electric cars or any green technology company because their success is so dependent on government policy and incentives. For instance, Tesla's filed to go public immediately after they got a $465 million loan guarantee to build their next factory for their next model. Solyndra, a solar cell company in Silicon Valley, filed to go public immediately after they got a half-billion-dollar loan to build their next factory. So that's where the stimulus money went, okay. Yeah, I mean, right now, <laughs> when I talk to venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, one of the first questions that venture capitalists will ask a startup company is, what's the status of your government funding? Mm-hmm. Are you likely to get a loan? Because that's become such a crucial part of you know, getting going and going to market now. VCs who want the government to stay out of the things except when they fund their Well, you know, this is, yeah. play, this is playing out, too, in the, in the whole um, um, uh, RPS or, you know, renewable portfolio standard targets that California has set up for itself, wanting to be one-third renewables by 2020. Uh, they're running into the same thing. You know, the developers of these big solar farms, you know, they, they go to their investors, and there are people lined up waiting to write checks as soon as they get permitted. But, you know, they run into this chicken and egg problem. So, well, we need the money in order to go through the permitting process, which costs millions of dollars and takes multiple years. The investors say, well, why not? We're not going to bet on something that might go south. And so what are some of the reasons that, that the permits take so long? And are, are we doing a good job of, of accelerating that process? Um, they're trying. They're trying. But it's still described even by the special advisor to the governor for renewables projects as tortuous uh, and, uh, and a lot of it has to do with all of the different agencies that have to be involved, all, uh, all of the different laws that have to be adhered to. Um, you know, it's not just uh, CEQA, you know, or the uh, California, California Environmental Quality, Quality Act. Act, you know. It's not just, you know, something like the Energy Commission. Um, it's very often a whole patchwork of, you know, a dozen or more agencies that have to get involved. One of the problems is that when you're building out a solar farm uh, or, um, or a wind farm, the footprint, the physical footprint of it is many, many times what it is for something like a natural gas plant, which maybe just, you can put that on a few acres. But some of these solar farms are thousands of acres. And so the more land you have involved, uh, then the more, you know, the more things are required in terms of biological surveys, make sure that there are no, you know, endangered species there. And if so, what are we going to do about it? And it takes uh, months and months and years sometimes to get through it. There's uh, I'm doing a story now with one solar developer who has had to bring in uh, scat-sniffing dogs who have to then go over the entire you know, couple of thousand acre footprint of his proposed uh, solar array to make sure that there are no kit foxes yeah. on the property. The you know, biological so. surveys alone can take years. I went yeah. down to one site where they spent hundreds and hundreds of hours looking for one particular species. In fact, I wrote a story for Fortune on one of the boom jobs right now is biologist is all these big solar Absolutely. power plants, that, yeah. which are typically being sited in the desert, which are home to a lot of endangered species. They have to go sometimes come in and do surveys for maybe a dozen different species, and they, sometimes the species only occur or can be found at certain times of year. If they were going to remake The Graduate, you know, the one piece of advice, you know, the one word instead of plastics, you know, at the cocktail party would be compliance. Compliance, yeah. <laughs> Solar or, so, yeah. yeah. So the, our environmental rules are an obstacle to solving this big environmental challenge. Yeah, I mean, the rules were put in place to protect the environment, and these big solar power plants definitely have an impact on the environment. So the, the challenge here is how to balance these two things out. 
about how to expedite permitting without doing something that's going to really hurt the environment, too. Because these are, when it comes down to it, big industrial facilities. And Todd, you wrote a story for the New York Times about a very secretive billionaire uh, philanthropist yeah. who's also making some big bets here. Yeah. What's he doing? Um, he's a really interesting... David Galbon is his name. He's given away a half billion dollars to environmental groups, including the Sierra Club and an com- uh, organization called the Wildlands Conservancy, which has preserved about 1,200 square miles of California, including a half million acres of the Mojave Desert. When some of these projects started appearing in the Mojave, including on these lands that were later donated to the government, his group got Diane Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, to introduce legislation to permanently protect those. He particularly believes that you shouldn't put big solar power plants in pristine areas, and he's made his big bets to the tune of a half billion dollars on a lot of solar companies that are developing what's called distributed solar that you put on the rooftop, you put in your cities, on degraded farmland. Okay, so he's making it in a lot. That, that got a lot of people upset in the, in the industry who want to say, look, this is a place for, for solar. There Tur- are s- turtles be damned. Really. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's anybody saying that, but, but, there, uh, but, but it, there are a lot of people saying, you know, if we could just get the process down to a, a reliable one-year time frame, just give us an up or down, yes or no, within one year, we'd be happy, our investors would be happy, but it's not quite playing out that way, um, unfortunately. I was going to say, Partly it's the onus is on the companies. They really need to make sure before they choose a site that they're not going to run into a huge species problem. Another issue I've written about is the water issue. Sure. A lot of these solar thermal power plants, they want to wet cool, which means they're using you know, a billion gallons of water a year or more in desert areas. And a lot, they've been forced basically to back off that now. And there are people, I mean, I, I have talked to people mostly in the... Uh, photovoltaic industry and the distributed who are, who, are, who are targeting distributed energy who who think that that distributed generation is the answer that that we can they sincerely believe that we can do it all we can meet our renewables goals just with distributed power but uh but i i would say they're in the minority most of the credible people that i've talked to think we're going to need it all we're going to need utility scale installations of one sort or another whether it's wind solar thermal solar out in the desert or someplace in order to get there. Because rooftop solar is one of the most expensive sources of power you can get, right? It is, but prices declined about 40 to 50% last year. So that's totally changed the equation. You've seen this with the utilities. They've signed hundreds and hundreds of megawatts worth of deals in the past year for photovoltaic because they've seen these big solar thermal projects get bogged down in environmental disputes. So it's, the equation has definitely shifted radically in just the past year. Do we know about job creation? A lot of the, you know, the economy is one thing, but what about jobs? Do we know if these things are creating uh, jobs in California? Obviously, the big solar pants will create construction jobs. And, and let's talk about jobs. Well, jobs, uh, the jobs for, for, for the build-out of the renewable energy systems, you know, the problem with the jobs uh, component is that many of them are temporary. Most of the jobs involved in a, uh, a solar array, for example, are involved in getting the place laid out and constructed, and then those people go home or they move on to do something else. It doesn't take very many bodies to, you know, uh, to permanently staff a solar array hmm. uh, out in the desert or something. So what, what a lot of the companies are doing is that when they're making their pitch about job creation, they're actually using job equivalent type figures and analysis and multipliers um, to, 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 to sort of, you know, sort of pad the account a little bit, I think. Thousands of jobs, yeah. just for two years. Or, yeah. yeah. But the unions are really behind this because it could be a thousand jobs for a 500 megawatt solar thermal plant for two years, but mm-hmm. they're hoping there'll be another one and another one. And there's literally dozens of these in the planning stages. So it, it is short term, but all construction jobs are short term. So they're hoping this will add another segment to the economy with the housing collapse. And something else you hear a lot of is that these are green jobs that cannot be 
exported, right. cannot be right. shipped overseas. But China has already surpassed us in, in uh, manufacturing, am I right, in manufacture of uh, photovoltaic panels, for example. Yes. Um, and so many of those jobs are already gone. And so the jobs they're talking about that can't be exported tend to be things like the weatherization jobs, you know, the, the, um, the climate uh, retro, the energy efficiency retrofitting jobs and, and the construction jobs. And install, for residential and commercial solar arrays, installing on, you know, rooftops and neighborhoods, those jobs are definitely are here and those are expanding. I was talking to a founder of a company called Sungevity and they had more orders in the month of March than they had the whole previous year. And how about on the car side? Most of the startups uh, are not based in Detroit. They're based here in California. Yeah. Fisker, Coda, Tesla, Better Place, they're all here. Are they creating jobs in California? Well, Coda is a Santa Monica company, but it's basically its car is being built in China. There we go. Okay. So, so Tesla, yes, it'll be, well, it's right now the Roadster is built in England. Um, mm. The Model S, the next model, will be built here. So... By the way, what's the cheapest car in their lineup right now that you can buy? That? For who? Tesla. Tesla? It's the Roadster at $109,000. <laughs> but the, the Model S, the sedan, I think, is coming out in the 40s or 50s? 40s. They say 50s with, with the tax rebate. So, I mean, these companies are small startup. They, small, mm-hmm. they will sell a very small number of cars, so we're not going to have a huge job creation. But you are actually seeing the job creation is in Detroit from solar companies because they're turning to a lot of the manufacturing process processes used in the automotive industry are perfect for solar manufacturing, for solar arrays. So um, there's been a number of companies that have set up operations in Detroit. Another big debate going on, uh, Craig Miller, is whether California has the the right policies in place. And tell us about what's happening with the repeal of the Global Warming Solution Act, or AB 32. Yeah, a lot of people have started to use the the word repeal. There's a repeal campaign going on. That's that's not exactly true. Yeah, 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 it'd be more more like a freeze campaign. Uh, There are are a number of people who are are very convinced that the, the law that California has had in place for about three years now to which is essentially the state's climate change strategy, um, you know, is going to wreck the economy. And there seem to be two schools of thought on this. You know, either it's going to wreck the economy or it's going to save the economy. Um, we just talked a little bit about all of the green jobs, you know, they're being created. There's a lot of hype around that as well. Um, but there are other people who think that it's, uh, that it's just piling too much on businesses, particularly small businesses, uh, too many mandates, too many costs at a time when, as one... Uh, person put it, you know, we, we have to dig ourselves out of the hole. So there's a whole campaign now to, um, to basically take this law known as AB 32, which is California's cap-and-trade program and it has a lot of other components to it, and stop it in its tracks until the unemployment rate drops down to 5.5% and stays there. This is the state unemployment rate for four consecutive quarters. Now, that's something that... Um, that has only happened about three times, you know, in the last 30 years. It's about a once-per-decade occurrence when that actually happens. Right now, the unemployment rate in California is over 12%. And so that could, in effect, mean putting AB 32 on hold, the state's entire climate mitigation and adaptation strategy, or most of it, on hold for basically an indefinite period of time. Yeah, so the environmentalists and others say it's basically to, to, to kill the bill because once it goes dormant for so long, it, it may not come back. But to be clear, AB 32 hasn't really taken effect yet. That's right. But the state does have about 100, according to the legislative analyst's office, uh, about $120 million invested in three or four years worth of getting it ramped up, just holding, you know, endless public hearings, developing regulations, taking uh, the first 
comprehensive greenhouse gas inventory among, uh, you know, industry in the state and that sort of thing. Yeah, so laying, laying yeah. the foundation. Uh, How is the governor responding to this? This AB 32 is kind of his legacy. Well, the governor has said this is the work of greedy out-of-state oil companies, and, uh, and he's going to push back. He's not going uh, he's, he's to allow it. Um, but uh, the initiative campaign to freeze AB 32 was able to raise with a lot of money from out-of-state oil companies, um, more than two-thirds, I think, financed by these companies, uh, um, more than, well, nearly double the, the number of signatures they would need to qualify for the initiative. We won't hear until the end of June on whether they actually be certified, um, but I, don't, I think there's little doubt that they will be certified. Uh, it's, it's already a, a, cam, a full-blown campaign. Both sides are armoring up with professional campaign strategists and communications people, and uh, the battle lines have been drawn. So, Todd Woody, the, the clean tech startups that you talked to, is this on their radar? Will this help, or where are they in this? Well, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, the venture capitalist community, the startups, they're all against this. But Against freezing AB32? Definitely. Because um, their companies will benefit from oh, yeah. AB32? Definitely. Um, however, the small companies, they don't have a lot of money to spend on political campaigns. They typically don't get involved in political fights. Um, but the national, they're one of one of their groups, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, is one of the uh, the main bodies behind uh, um, behind the campaign to freeze AB thirty two. So the the business community seems to be split on this whole idea. Some some ben, some of the you know the green tech yeah. uh, companies clearly that will benefit. Um, they're in favor of keeping uh, AB thirty two in effect. Um, there are other companies that have invested a lot of money over the last three years in just getting ready for compliance for a right. set of rules that has been in development. And now they're just saying, hey, somebody tell us what the rules are going to be. They're not, they're not quite sure which direction to run in. And then you have other businesses that, that are clearly opposed to it. If, you're running a, if you run a cement mill, for example, you're going to be paying a lot of money in um, emissions permits. And what would be the impact? There are other – AB 32 is just a centerpiece of many climate laws that the state has passed in recent years years on land use and tailpipe missions, et cetera. Uh, so what would be the impact if AB 32 were, were frozen? Uh, would the others go forward? And, and how big of a you know, change would that be? Well, um, uh, the, the regula- all of the, uh, the regulations uh, uh, would probably be frozen. Most of the regulations under AB 32 would probably be frozen for, you know, un- until that finally lifts, you know, when, when they hit the, uh, the unemployment for a long, trigger. For a very long time. For a very long time. Now, it could happen anyway. Um, there's already a provision um, in AB 32 that allows the governor at, uh, at their discretion, at his or her discretion, in, in times of extreme economic stress to suspend the whole thing for up to one year. Both of the leading Republican candidates, you know, have already said they would do that. So it's quite possible that the, the thing might end up being suspended anyway. Hmm. Okay, so we wouldn't necessarily need this ballot initiative if, the, if a certain governor and, got it. That's and it right. wouldn't affect the renewable portfolio standard that requires utilities to obtain a certain percentage of their electricity from renewable sources. That's right, yeah. Tailpipe laws. There's wouldn't lots affect, of other tools. The yeah, the box. tailpipe emissions law, of course, after a long fight with the federal government, basically became the federal rule. So, yeah. And let's talk about the federal rules briefly. Uh, recently, there was a new climate bill introduced in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting lots of play. Some environmentalists like it, some don't. A lot of businesses like it or don't. How's that going to f- uh, play out, and how's that going to affect California here? Well, here again, you know, there, there are actually two bills out there now, one almost forgotten, you know, that yeah. was passed by the House narrowly last year, and now uh, the Senate bill, which has just been proposed, 
recently. Um, both of these bills contain provisions that would either that would either preempt or temporarily suspend. Uh, carbon regulation at the state and regional level, specifically the cap-and-trade program under AB 32 that California has been trying to roll out in conjunction with a half a dozen other states and Canadian provinces. Um, under the Senate bill, the more recent Senate bill, that would, they would simply pull the plug on that. Under the House bill, it would be suspended until 2017. So is that to say that if a federal bill passes, AB 32 doesn't matter anyways? Well, um, essentially, it, it, it either won't matter or it won't matter for a few years, depending on how things go. But, but basically, yeah, the, you know, the, the businesses in general uh, often decry this idea of a patchwork regulation. Sure. Um, you know, they want one set of rules that applies everywhere, uh, and, and so... Even even Mary Nichols, the head of the uh, the air you know board in California, who's kind of like a chief you know regulator behind AB 32, even she says you know we all want to see uh, you know a federal program in place, but we don't want that program to to undermine the state's rights to continue with their own programs. Uh, they're afraid that the, the federal programs will end up being not as stringent, quite frankly. And uh, as, as one state uh, official put it in a, in a conference call with media, you know, they're afraid that the, you know, the, federal, the federal rules will end up setting ceilings uh, instead of floors. You know. Right. And California is known to be further uh, lead the country rather than follow the country on these things, right? Right. Right. Todd Woody, um, again, you know, are the clean tech investors concerned about this? I mean, how much of their bets that they're placing on these big investments are, are, are betting on these kinds of policies? Going? I mean, in the long run, they're all betting that there'll be some kind of national climate legislation. Price on carbon. Price on carbon. Um, and they've actually spent a lot of time in Washington in a way they have not in the past. You see VCs in Washington, you've seen them in Copenhagen. So they've definitely, have, you know, they've realized they have to get involved I don't think it's, you know, affecting their decisions down to I'm going to invest in this company or not. But, I mean, the health of the whole sector definitely depends on this in the long run. Certainty. They, whether there is or isn't, they yeah. want certainty. Right? What are the rules going to be? Just tell us. That's you know, what a lot of them are saying. Well, great. Todd Woody and Craig Miller, thank you for coming to Climate thank One. Thank you. Thank you for having us.